Israeli Air Force hits Iranian targets. Trump threatens the Ayatollahs. What's the connection? The Clyde at 50, the heart of the Royal Navy, still beating in Scotland. It's a great opportunity to recognise how much we're investing in this base for the future uh, as a sign of the Royal Navy's long-term commitment here. And Arnhem, the World War II operation that could never have succeeded. In the past 24 hours, Israel's air force has attacked Iranian positions, including its believed intelligence headquarters in Syria. The attack is in retaliation, say the Israelis, for assaults by Iranians on Israeli positions on the Golan Heights, border territories captured by the Israelis in the Six-Day War of June 1967. Well, joining me today, Professor Rosemary Hollis of City University in London, Emeritus Professor Colin Schindler from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford and Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, is here with me in the studio. Uh, to you, first of all, Professor Hollis, uh, this is not new, is it? Well, Israel has been hitting targets in Syria for some time now in the context of the Syrian war, and the objective has been usually Hezbollah, which is a client of Iran, and latterly Iranians themselves. However, this is a turning point in terms of the history of the region, I would suggest, because as of Trump's decision to pull America out of the nuclear deal with Iran, I think Netanyahu and his government has taken that as the go-ahead for a plan, I suspect, they coordinated with the Trump administration, which is not just to carry on the containment of Iran and its influence and capabilities in the region, but rather the beginning of a plan to attempt to roll back the Iranian position in Syria, if they can, in Lebanon, and to attack Iran directly in terms of its nuclear facilities were they to even show an inkling of restarting uranium enrichment and giving the Trump administration an excuse to go after them at home. It's quite a thought, isn't it? Well, let's go to Israel. Professor Schindler, in some ways, this Iranian attack is to Israel's advantage. Well, I'm in Haifa at the moment, so <clears throat> I'm perhaps closest to the scene of the action. Um, about seven or eight years ago, the uh, military leadership and the intelligence community in Israel firmly opposed Netanyahu and Barak in that they wished to attack uh, Iran itself because of the possibility of um, military action against Israel. Instead, um, they uh, used uh, assassinations, probably, of uh, crucial people in the Iranian nuclear uh, uh, industry. They used the Stuxnet um, virus, which stopped... Uh, centrifuge is going. But what is happening now during the last couple of days is uh, uh, the possibility of attack on Israel itself. And in that sense, I think many Israelis are united uh, behind Netanyahu in that they see this as a defensive measure. Um, the Iranians uh, in Syria were warned on several occasions during the last month not to attack, not to attack army outposts on the uh, Golan Heights, and yet they, they did so. And uh, the uh, Ministry of Defence, led by Victor Lieberman, 
uh, ordered uh, attack on numerous uh, Iranian targets in uh, Syria itself, and with, with the statement that they actually uh, eliminated all the uh, Iranian uh, bases uh, that could possibly be hostile to, to Israel itself. So uh, this particular action is seen here as a defensive action, and that defence is the best way of stopping a future war. In that context then, uh, Professor Rogers, it does seem there is a slight new departure here. Can you put this into the context of what's going on with Washington and Iran? Well, I think the, the attitude of the Trump administration to withdraw from the treaty with Iran, uh, other countries are still involved, but the Americans are now out, basically uh, shows a major change within Washington. And given the nature of the people who are revising uh, Mr. Trump, particularly Mike Pompeo at the State Department, and especially, I think, John Bolton at the, the National Security Advisor, they take a very hard line as far as Iran is concerned and are extremely pro-Israel. So I think to some extent, uh, Israel under Netanyahu feels that it doesn't have carte blanche, but it is in a much stronger position. It can know that it can depend on the United States. There may be more to it than that, because I think we've got to look at the nature of these raids, obviously. Why did the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, actually choose to do what was clearly a provocative, quite small-scale raid on the Glen Heights? I mean, mm. they used, what, about 20 1970s vintage, unguided, unguided fairly short-range missiles. It's almost as though they were trying to determine how the Israelis would react. The Israelis have probably reacted a lot stronger than the Iranians expected, but at the same time, they will have basically safeguarded all their facilities, got most of the people out of the way. So the damage, I think, would be more physical than political. Christopher Lee, do, do you think that what's going on here is a bit of manoeuvring between Iran and Israel, seeing how far the other side is going to go? Yeah, it's three-cornered, isn't it? You've got the, as as, as Paul says, we'll see what the Iranians are doing against Israel. It's a, it's a testing motion, military testing motion. You could have put in Hezbollah for example, uh, a, a small operation by them, but you want to see what the timings are, how, how quickly the is Israelis react, what is the, uh, what is the physical uh, time of movement of Israeli forces, if there are going to be any, what, what aircraft they would use and, and, where, they would, and where they would choose their uh, targets. So that's the one side of it. The other side of the thing, I, fi I find the American thing more, more interesting. Um, it would be so easy, wouldn't it, to turn around and to say, well, that's Trump. You know, what do you expect from Trump? It's it's a terrible way he did this, and uh, it was against everything they wanted in Europe. Uh, Europe's plan in the Middle East has never been very good. Trump said he was going to do this. He said he was going to do this in election. Uh, it was Obama who fixed the deal, and, and therefore it would have to go anyway. And yes, uh, Pompeo and, and, and Bolton there really sort of backing up what he wanted to do and what he was being saying he wanted to do all the time. The most interesting part of it is that when he turns around to the, uh, turns around to the uh, Iranians and says, look, don't restart your nuclear program or you will be in trouble. Mm. Ostensibly, we think, oh, well, airstrikes and total economic uh, sanctions, perhaps. What about, as Rose is suggesting, perhaps, and that is uh, the Israelis carrying out any strike or taking so, part in any strike. And I think that's far more interesting because that is not sort of total international 
going out of the sort of war structure. That is actually doing something which is almost doing it now. And when you see which of those uh, facilities are particularly guarded, especially the subterranean ones, you actually know where your targets are even now. So, Professor Rosemary Hollis, have you got a sense of how Iranians are feeling about this latest development announced by Donald Trump this week uh, and the fear that you, that you mentioned that facilities might be targeted in Iran? How worried are they? I think they can read the signals very well. And the, the Trump announcement about ditching the nuclear deal was a triumph for the hardliners in Tehran. We now can expect that President Rouhani, who staked his own political fortunes on making that deal with the Americans and others. Uh, he is now going to be overtaken by the hardliners, but as has been said in our discussion today, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, who are the key targets of the Israelis, the key source of Israeli anxiety, and I take Colin Schilner's point that uh, theirs was a defensive action in this case, but in the tradition of Israeli preemption of a looming disaster from their point of view, because not, not just the Revolutionary Guard Corps, but their clients, Hezbollah, have been building up big time their weapons and their ammunition stocks, their missile capability, uh, their preparedness for a war on the Israeli-Lebanon-Syria front, the Golan Heights. And so I think Israeli moves are to head that off before it comes. And in contrast, as Colin also said, to previous occasions when the Israelis thought they might have to go alone against Iran's uh, nascent nuclear capability, this time they can count on the Americans to be with them and to have the same aspiration to use whatever means necessary to head off a nuclear-powered Iran. And I don't think that message is lost or that logic is lost on the hardliners mm. in Iran because it's come from Bush I beg your pardon, Freudian slip. <laughs> it's come from Trump as well as from Netanyahu. Can I just um, sort of inject something which is probably right out of this, but what about the 70th birthday on Monday of Israel? Um, the move of the American embassy, I think still on next Monday. Week. Next week, yes. Yeah. Um, does this sort of thing, uh, is it used as, 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 as the symbolism, symbolism of, of, it, of it, does it come in here at all, or is that just coincidental? Professor Colin Schindler, maybe you can answer that best. Yes, I, my, my sense is that, is that it's uh, really coincidental. In fact, the, um, the Hebrew date of the 70th anniversary of the founding of Israel passed a, a couple of weeks ago, and the English date, the 14th of May, will not take place until next week. Uh, I'd like to add an extra point here in, in that... Um, the attack, Israeli attacks in the past have been on Hezbollah. Uh, it's it's the, the passage of missiles via Syria to Hezbollah on the northern border of Israel. In 2006, there was the Second Lebanon War, in which Hezbollah was very successful. The, the um, particular uh, armaments which had been built just inside Lebanon by the North Koreans uh, virtually depopulated the northern part of Israel. People fled into the interior out of the uh, range of the rockets. And it was this that stimulated the uh, production of the Iron Dome protection 
system, which was uh, used actually uh, against the Iranians, any, any missiles coming in. So there was that. The, on the nuclear question, um, there again is a historical record of Israel taking preemptive action. In 1981, they bombed the Osirak uh, nuclear reactor in Iraq under Saddam Hussein to prevent the um, development of, of, of nuclear energy for offensive uh, purposes. In 2007, they similarly uh, bombed uh, a Syrian facility which would, would do the same uh, under Assad before the, the uh, outbreak of the civil mm -hmm. war. So we have these historical examples which points to the raison d'etre of why Israel responds. Perfect. Now, you could certainly criticize Netanyahu for obscuring the nuclear question and the conventional weapons question, which he did in his uh, press conference a few, few days ago. Uh, but certainly uh, Trump's pulling out of the hmm. uh, agreement with Iran certainly helps him and helps Israel to defend itself in that sense. Professor Paul Rogers, uh, the events of this week, do you think it is inevitable that Iran will have one day a nuclear weapon? No, it's not inevitable, uh, just as the, the world won't end with Donald Trump. Uh, but certainly, unless we can get to grips with this, it's going to be more difficult to control proliferation more widely. And of course, what we haven't discussed at all is what impact is this going to have on North Korea? Uh, can they believe anything that the Americans say? That will be their perspective, whether they're right or wrong. So I think this is a wider issue. I think the immediate concern is whether there's going to be a further, very short, immediate escalation. I think there may be a pause now, but we're not through this by a long shot. And as far as the Quds Force, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, are concerned, this is good news because it demonstrates that they are the true guardians of the Islamic Revolution. And I think this is one of the reasons why they've been building up so much, as Colin and Rosemary both said, building up their facilities in, Lebe in uh, Syria in, in the last year or two. And there for now, I'm afraid we'll have to leave it. Professor Paul Rogers, thank you. Professor Rosemary Hollis, Emeritus Professor Colin Schindler, thank you for joining us today. Sit with Kate Still to come, the World War II battle that should never have been. And the general wears Prada. Could Britain become a global leader in protecting civilians trapped in armed conflict? A new report from the charity Save the Children, together with the Royal United Services Institute, says the UK should lead in the same way it has in preventing sexual violence in conflict and its global campaigns on issues like cluster munitions and landmines. Well, Laura Macon Isherwood spoke to Kevin Watkins, who is Chief Executive of Save the Children. The idea of protecting civilians from the effect of war is, is actually pretty much as old as warfare itself. But I think at the moment we're, we're facing some very distinctive challenges. And in particular, there's the emergence of what we describe in Save the Children as a culture of impunity surrounding armed groups that systematically violate international humanitarian law, that violate international human rights law, and that violate international criminal law. And these are the three great pillars of the defence of civilians who find themselves caught in armed conflict. As a children's organisation, of course, we're first and foremost concerned with the impact of war on children. There are around 365 million children in the world today who are living either in or very close to conflict zones. And it's absolutely imperative that we find more effective ways of protecting those children. How do you think that the UK can help prevent that? 
I, th I think there are a number of ways that the UK can help. So, for example, the UK military are already right at the forefront when it comes to training for the protection of civilians. And, of course, the UK military is involved in an advisory role with militaries in other parts of the world, notably in Iraq. And I think just ensuring that all militaries that the UK comes into contact with are aware of their obligations under international human rights law, that they're aware of the strategic choices that they'll face when they enter conflict zones, and that there is accountability here. You, you know, that the international humanitarian law actually counts for something, and the UK, through the training it does, through its through its global presence, can, can really put its stamp on, on that. But the UK can also play a much bigger role. The, this is an area where we need global leaders who will step up to the plate on behalf of the children who are at risk. And I think if you wanted a defining project for global Britain in what is a difficult age for multilateralism, for international cooperation, what better project than the defence of children in armed conflict? Kevin Watkins, Chief Executive of Save the Children. Christopher Lee, it's a compelling argument, isn't it? It is, but it's a problem, and that is international. Therefore, each society that you're going to get involved with do things differently, and you've got to do things, if you're really talking about warfare and cities and children especially, you've got to do things as habit as you would normally do them and have them emphasised. The is Americans, that not about the way the military is trained, then? The military isn't trained. You see, you're trained to do certain things, and that's, and that's in, in, employ... Uh, the United Nations uh, uh, wording on this and saying this is what you have to do, this is what you must not do, etc. But to actually sort of start thinking on a bigger scale, there's a bigger story behind this, and that is how do you in future fight in urban society, fight a war in cities, keep so-called collateral damage down? That's just an aside to it. But we now have, since the last time people looked at warfare, we now have cities that are bigger than ever, that rely on resources more than ever, that where people, for example, are used to work, doing everything digitally, whereas before they knew, knew how to light fires, for example, to bring food to somewhere there was a fire so you could eat. The Americans are going to, by the end of this year, set up a new urban city warfare academy. And they've got a, a four-star, a three-star general in charge and say, how do we do it in future? Because surely we will have to. Now, the home of the UK's nuclear deterrent has marked 50 years in operation. Her Majesty's naval base Clyde is home to the Royal Navy's Vanguard-class submarines and celebrated its golden anniversary today. The first Sea Lord, Admiral Sir Philip Jones, is there and has been speaking to Forces News reporter David McCann. First Sea Lord, we're here celebrating 50 years of the Royal Navy base here on the Clyde and a day to look back as well. It, it is. It's a great day of history, uh, looking back on 50 years of how this base has evolved from when it was first opened in 1968. Um, all the great work that's been done here by both the Royal Navy ships companies of the submarines based here, by all those who work on the base to support them, all the contractors who underpin the logistic support and sustainability of the base, and of course all those in the wider industry who, uh, who work to support what goes on here. But we're looking forward as well. Um, it's a great opportunity to recognise how much we're investing in this base for the future uh, as a sign of the Royal Navy's long-term commitment here. And what kind of contribution has this base made to not only the Royal Navy but the security of the United Kingdom during that last 50 years? 
a hugely significant contribution because this is the base from which the Royal Navy's ballistic missile submarines have maintained a continuous at sea deterrence for 49 of those 50 years. And that's been an important moment for us because we recognize the responsibility that brings to the security of the nation, that however the threats to that security change, however the world situation evolves, the presence of those submarines um, and the deterrence they offer um, has been to a succession of governments uh, through all of that period uh, a very significant contribution to their national security uh, and we'd like to continue doing that as long as we're asked to do so. And how important is the location to the Royal Navy, the base being this far north and in this strategic position? Well, the geography of it was what enabled it to be put here in the first place. It's ideally suited with deep water, but a secluded lock, uh, protected from the sea, but very easy access to the deep water of the North Atlantic, which is why it's here. But, of course, over the years, it's also... Um, effectively evolved to become the Royal Navy's principal hub in Scotland. Uh, and I think that's important because, A, it anchors the Royal Navy in Scotland. We want the uniform to be seen here. We're very proud of being based in Scotland. But also it makes Scotland aware of the Royal Navy and helps us contribute to the economy of Scotland. And that's hugely important too. So I think the fact the future is so secure um, in jobs and people moving here and opportunities uh, is a confirmation that that works on both sides. The First Sea Lord Admiral Sir Philip Jones. Now, one of the Second World War's most famous battles was Arnhem. No one had planned or done anything like this before. Is that why it failed? The military historian Anthony Beaver has examined what happened and why, for the latest book, Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges, 1944. So where did Arnhem fit in the whole picture of the Second World War? I asked him earlier. It fits into the moment of that extraordinary charge from the River Seine after the Battle of Normandy when the Guards Armoured Division, in a matter of uh, a day or so, went all the way to Belgium and to Brussels. And there was a victory euphoria at that particular stage. Everybody thought this was the collapse of the German army, as in August 1918, and therefore um, the Germans were about to collapse. And this is when Montgomery uh, had the idea of trying to jump the River Rhine uh, by Operation Market Garden, an airborne attack, seizing bridges all the way through over uh, 70 miles, really, uh, from the Belgian border all the way through to the River Rhine. And is it right to say that this is the most complex or was the most complex British military operation ever attempted thus far? Well, it was certainly the most ambitious, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the trouble was it was far too ambitious and actually should never have been launched. Um, the whole idea was that uh, b because they assumed wrongly that the German army was collapsing, um, that uh, they could therefore just seize these bridges and that the uh, Guards Armoured Division leading 30 Corps would just motor up a single road all the way. Uh, and, of course, it turned into a terrible disaster, not just for the British Army, but above all for the Dutch population. And the parachute job, drop, um, the greatest ever seen, is that still the case? Yes, I mean, it was the largest airborne operation um, ever, ever mounted at the time. But, I mean, the, the, the problem was that um, it was basically Montgomery refusing to listen to any warnings and insisting on doing everything in his particular way. And despite history judging it as a failure, the generals and politicians declared it a victory. Is that a pattern that's repeated itself, do you think, in recent military history, for example, with Afghanistan? 
I think that one can't make too many uh, historical parallels in that way. Certainly, at the time of the Second World War, you know, the the British establishment and, above all, generals did not like to admit uh, failure. Uh, and, I mean, in fact, in the case of Arnhem uh, Market Garden and Arnhem, um, it went to extreme lengths with Montgomery trying to claim that it was a 90% victory, mm. uh, which, of course, produced uh, absolute uh, outrage amongst uh, many people, not least the Dutch. And the personal cost, you do go into great detail. Are there any particular instances that stick out in your mind that, that you maybe dream about, keep you awake at night? Oh, there were many absolute um, horrors. I mean, the... The trouble is that I think, on the whole, previous histories have tended to slightly downplay or overlook uh, the savagery of the fighting and the way that, you know, there they were cut off both at Arnhem but by the bridge and round uh, Oysterbeek, um, where the first airborne, in fact, lacked the medical facilities in many of the places. They were having to amputate legs, uh, even with sort of escape files, uh, because uh, they couldn't get the right surgical equipment and so forth. Um, no, the suffering was um, simply terrible, and I think we've tended to uh, overlook that, really, in, in past accounts. Mm. What do you think today's soldier should take from your book? I think that uh, they should see that um, today, I think that the commanders are a lot more um, professional in the sense of the way that they go about their planning. Uh, I think that what was appalling at the time was that Montgomery uh, refused, out of mainly out of vanity, uh, to follow either the orders of Eisenhower, which were that all planning had to be uh, basically approved and cleared with the air side first, and that also the Ministry of Defence, or the sorry, the War Ministry, the War Office in those days, uh, had also insisted on exactly the same thing. But Montgomery uh, was determined to impose his views. Uh, without actually listening to the problems involved in this operation. And that was actually the basis of the disaster. You say uh, that today's military commanders are more professional. What's changed? And do we have any stars today? Well, I certainly think so. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a great admirer of, uh, of General Nick Carter and uh, those who come through, and I know some of them uh, quite well. Uh, it's totally different. I mean, even when I was in the army back in the uh, 1960s and 19, early 19, up to the 1970s, um, generals, I didn't think, were either hugely intelligent. There were obviously some exceptional, outstanding ones like Shan Hackett or whatever, who was at Arnhem. Um, but, I mean, today, the, uh, A, the qualifications, the uh, university degrees and all the rest of it, but above all also the training system uh, and the selection system, uh, I think, has actually uh, revolutionized, if you like, the professionalism of the army. That was Anthony Beaver, whose book Arnhem, The Battle for the Bridges 1944 is out next week. There's a new head of the army. Lieutenant General Mark Carlton, Carlton Smith will take over from General Sir Nick Carter next month when he becomes Chief of the Defence Staff. General Carlton Smith commanded SAS troops in the hunt for Osama bin Laden soon after the 9-11 terror attacks. The new Chief of the General Staff has previously talked about what he thinks makes a British soldier tick. The British soldier, both man and woman, is a remarkably robust, tenacious and resilient character. I know that there is steeler resolve and quiet determination and, I dare say, professional satisfaction and pride in a tough and challenging job being well done.
Not much is expected then, is it, Christopher? Let's face it. Well, no, you see, he's, he's no E, an old Etonian, and the whole of Eton was like that, had that sort of idea that that's what they should do. Um, MCS, he's called, you see, mm. Mark Carlton Smith mm. from now onwards. Was the Director of Operations, Military Operations in the MOD, under Nick Carter, who was the previous, his, the previous man in the job, Nick Carter goes to become Chief of the Defence Staff, trusts MCS, Tells the Prime Minister, said, there's no no question, he is the man. Mm. And and, that, and that's what we do. And what's this business about the general wearing well, he's Prada? Well, he's I quite a stylish. I mean, oh, he's expected to be stylish, I suppose. But the point is, uh, he wore jeans. Now, you go into the off, you go to the mess and wear jeans. Uh, but they're designer jeans, <laughs> said the rest of the army. But this is when he was in the uh, uh, when he was in the SAS, and he commanded, which he commanded in 2002. So what's going to bring to the army? Oh, the, uh, this, this ability to operate uh, or to be operational. In other words, this is the army we've got. Somebody says, like government says, we've got to do this particular job. He will say, I have done that job. I know how to bring it all together. The chief, the defence staff, trusts him to bring it all together. It's going to be a very, very, very good double act. And perhaps next job, CDS in jeans, mm, Prada. Never know. The CDS wore Prada. You heard it here. <laughs> And that is all we have time for this week. I'm not wearing Prada, by the way. Do check out our video on the Forces News Facebook page and send us your comments. Or you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP and never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll be back same time next week. From me, Kate Chabot, bye-bye for now. of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.